I encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be in chapter 3, but I'm going to read something out of chapter 1 first. So if you want to just go to chapter 1. The opening, uh, the opening nine verses of this letter are an introduction. And uh, they introduce the issues and subjects that are going to be discussed in the body of the letter. And most of the things that are said in this opening are in seed form. So it's not fully developed. And so as you go through the letter, you can return to this introduction and see that Paul had all of these things in mind right from the very beginning. This is the introduction. And after we looked at that, we began uh, moving into the body of the letter. And it begins in verse 10. And the first issue that Paul addressed is the primary issue. It's the underlying issue of everything else. And that is that there is divisive attitudes in the church. And you and I just, you know, when we think about what a divisive attitude is, we immediately start thinking about people fighting and arguing and quarreling. But it's more than that. It's, it's just selfish behavior. It's just being selfish. Uh, selfishness manifests itself in a variety of ways. And so in this particular church, this was one of the problems. People were gravitating towards different teachers. And uh, we don't quite understand the dynamics of what was going on there, but... Uh, that was the problem, but at the, at the root of this is, uh, is selfishness. And so it, it come to us, uh, as we move into this body of the letter, beginning of verse 10, Paul explains this problem of division. Beginning of verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it's been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there are quarrels among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I am with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who, you, who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? And so here we can see that there is this divisions. And so with, once we've read that, then we can, we can go back to the introduction and see that Paul had this in mind because he was emphasizing unity and stressing unity. There in, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, all of you, saints by calling, with everybody else, with all of the other Christians, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours. So you can see he's trying to bring, draw their attention to the fact that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, not just in this little church, but in all churches. There is a, a universal body of Christ that's spread all over the globe. So Paul is calling them to unity. And then in verse 9, in the closing of the introduction, he says, God is faith, faithful through whom you were called into fellowship, not just with his son Jesus Christ, but everyone else. He says, you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All believers. And so you can see that in seed form, Paul was already addressing this primary issue of divisions. 
by stressing unity in his introduction. And then after that, he moves into a, a big piece of information that begins uh, in verse 17 of chapter 1 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. And uh, this big block is uh, Paul's attack or explanation about the cause of these divisions. Why is this happening? Now, we know it's happening because of pride and being self-centered and wanting your way and pushing your preferences on other people and those kind of things and uh, being divisive and proud. We know that. But there's an underlying issue that uh, basically in a nutshell was that the Christians there were thinking and acting like unbelievers. Specifically, they had decided to steer their lives with the world's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Now, that sounds like a dumb thing to do, but we all do it. All of us, as we chart our course through life, do our best to make good decisions. We try to make wise decisions. All of us do. And when something lies before you, you will draw from your experience and your knowledge and counsel. And you pull all of these things together and you will do your very best to apply that to what lies before you, to your decision, and hopefully successfully and appropriately applying these things to your problem or your decision that you're trying to make. Believers do that. Unbelievers do that. Everybody does that. The, the difference is this, that a believer has access to God's wisdom through the Holy Spirit, and the unbeliever does not. In this passage that I'm talking about, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17 to the end of chapter 2, Paul refers to unbelievers as the natural man. There in verse 14 of chapter 2. It's an unbeliever. The unbeliever has uh, limited information. He can only draw from the world's wisdom. To a lost person, the gospel doesn't make any sense. It defies logic. It defies common sense. And so to believe the gospel, like to truly believe it, is dumb. It's a foolish move. So the gospel itself is just foolish because it doesn't make any sense to the natural man at all. I brought up Bill Maher last, uh, last time we were together and you know, he, he says that an otherwise intelligent person, you know, the, the normal guy who's halfway intelligent, that decides to believe in religion of some kind, what they do is they, they block off part of their brain so that they can accept something that is intellectually embarrassing. This is how the gospel, the message of the cross, looks to the natural man. And so for someone to actually believe it, not to just say they believe it and you know wear the banner, I'm a Christian, I go to this Baptist church or whatever, but to truly believe the gospel, to, to actually in your heart believe it's true. That is evidence of God intervening in your life, of God uh, predestining you. Look at the condition of the lost man there in, in 
chapter 2, verse 14, says, The unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. In our Bible study this morning, Gene was going through Romans chapter 5, and there's a little phrase in there that says that uh, when we were helpless, you know, um, just gives us the, the condition of the lost man. Chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment Christ died for the ungodly. It is the picture of someone who is incapable of accepting it. They're not even able to. So when someone believes the gospel, it is a miracle. In verse 10 of chapter 2, it says that, that uh, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. So the mere fact that you and I believe in Jesus, that we believe the gospel, is because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us. We were helpless. We were deaf, dumb, and blind, incapable. And so in verse 31 of chapter 1, as that chapter ends, it says, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Our faith is a testimony of God's miracle, of God's miraculous work in our life. It's incredible. So we need to see the contrast, and that's really the objective here in chapter uh, 1, of moving all the way through chapter 2 there, is the contrast between the way an unbeliever sees things. They have a limited, deficient viewpoint. Their perspective is not complete. They don't have access. Uh, and that's contrasted with the believer who is able to see or should be seeing and utilizing and accessing God's wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And of course, the problem here is in the church of Corinth, that's not happening. That avenue is being bypassed or rejected or ignored. And so Christians are living just like everybody else and not accessing God's wisdom. They're not appreciating God's wisdom. And how do you do that? Do you plug it into the wall to get that electricity? How do you get that wisdom from God? How do you do that? Well, uh, if we could zoom out just for a minute to see what we're talking about here. Uh, this is important to me. I don't know if it is to you or not, but uh, outlines are really important. And it's like a big hamburger bun divisions at the top and bottom and the meat in the middle there. But basically what happens is Paul introduces these divisive attitudes that are present in the church. We just read that. And then in the beginning of verse 17 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, he deals with this root problem, the cause. That people are living and acting and thinking like they're not even Christians. So it's like you're living here when you could be living here and up there. You know, having both worlds. God's wisdom, the world's wisdom, but you've got God's wisdom, and they're choosing to just completely forget about that part of it and live down here with the rest of all of the other lost people and think just like the lost people do. That's the problem. And so our passage this morning begins in chapter 3, and Paul returns to this business of this divisions. And so, just to show you, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 10, 
I want us to see here that this is what Paul's doing in, in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be not united and with the same understanding and the same conviction, the same purpose. We're going to see that. So he begins talking about these divisions. And then when we come to this passage that we're going to be studying in chapter 3, we can see this is what he's still talking about. After he's talked about the cause, he's now returning to the divisions. And when he does this, he's going to be very, it's very different. But he's returning to the subject. Look in verse 3 of chapter 3. Because you are still fleshly, for since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like ordinary people? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not typical mere men? And then all the way down to the very end of chapter 3, he's still talking about it. Look in verse uh, 21. So no one should boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And so I hope we can see that uh, beginning in chapter 3, as I have up on the outline, is that Paul has returned to this subject. And from the very beginning of chapter 3 all the way to the end, this is what he's going to be addressing but while we're out at this big picture, uh, this, is, this is the approach that Paul will make as he addresses this issue. And he, he doesn't just spend all of his time talking about people arguing and fighting. Instead, he talks about the way things are supposed to be. He talks about what the goal and objective of the church is. And so uh, that's the contrast. Whatever problem is going on in your life, whatever problem is going on in my life, whatever we're messing up in, um, we can, it's contrasted by the truth of what the church is supposed to be doing. And uh, out of everything I've read, and uh, a lot, and listened to sermons, and just ex been exposed as much as I could expose myself to, uh, Warren Wiersbe is the one who came up with the best outline. And so that's his outline up there. What happens in chapter 3 is, is Paul returns to the subject of divisive attitudes. He talks about the way things are supposed to be, what the church is supposed to be doing. And so the very first thing he does, he says, you know, the church is a family. And the goal is maturity. And so the fact that there are divisions proves and it reveals that there is a lack of maturity. Because maturity has humility. And maturity has unity. So this is the first piece of this that we will look at. There goes McKenna. Okay, there goes birthday girl. Hi, Sophia. <laughs> so the first one is the maturity. The family is supposed to, the church is, is a family, and we're supposed to mature. The second one is that the church is like a field, and the goal is quantity. And the idea there is that uh, individual believers are, are plants. They're plants in the field, and we're expected to, to grow and yield fruit. The church is supposed to bear fruit. And hopefully we will look at both of those this morning, and then next week, if everything goes as planned, we'll look at the final one, and that is that God tells us that the church is a temple, and the goal is quality. Uh, we're supposed to yield reward. 
So uh, in this passage here, it's the church that is the temple. When we get to chapter 6 of this letter, it's the individual that's the temple. In this particular context, it's the, it's the church itself as a whole. So we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you were not able to receive it. In fact, you are still not able, because you are still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, and are you not fleshly and living like ordinary people? For whenever someone says, I am with Paul, and another, I am with Apollos, are you not typical, natural, mere men? The fact that there are divisions shows that there's a lack of maturity. The church is supposed to be a family with the goal of maturing. And uh, in the past, we talked about the, uh, the things that people have divisions over, the things that people um, disagree with each other about. And we looked at how there are some things that are non-negotiable. There are fundamentals of our faith that we're not going to bend on. You know, the authority of the Bible, the sufficiency of Christ and His atoning sacrifice for sin, um, the return of Christ. There are things that we, the virgin birth, and the, the, we're not going to go through them all, but we know that there are certain things that are just fundamental to our faith. You can't take them away. And so if there's a division about that, we've got a serious problem because this is a matter that we cannot bend on. And as a church, we need to hold firm to that. You know, we see denominations and churches folding under these kind of issues. And it can't be. But there are secondary issues. And these are the things that really, they, they can blow up a church just as fast and bad. And we talked about that. There's things that people divide over that are secondary issues, and they should not be things that would divide us. Things that are like a church tradition or preferences. Your preference is so important to you that you're willing to impose your preference on, other, on everybody else. These are the kind of things that people do in, in a church environment. Uh, demanding that we continue to do something because we've always done it. Another thing is control. Just uh, people uh, have always been in control. This family has always had been in charge. And now that's being threatened, or this person's always had this certain responsibility, or whatever, just, uh, you may not even realize that you're doing it, but you, all of a sudden you feel like you have control and that's being threatened, and money, uh, money is a big deal. All kinds of silly things, they're secondary issues, they're not the kind of things that, they're hills to die on, and we're going to destroy the church from within. So, uh, it's not unreasonable for us to disagree about things, but our heart should always be uh, our heart should always have the desire for unity, to work through things and to compromise if it's compromisable and to not have to have your way. Is there a way for us to move through this together and, and remain together? Remember Jesus in the garden? He's like, Jesus would pray, Father, I pray that they'll be one. Unity. It's very important. And so uh, if we won't do that, if we put our foot down, 
If we've decided this is the hill to die on because this, the music has to be this way, or I'm in charge of this, or I've always, we've always done it this way, as soon as we start to do that, there's pride, we're being self-centered, and we're being divisive. And we are choosing to see everything through the lens of the world. So as we come to this passage that we just read, it starts off with the word brothers. And so Paul is talking to Christians. This is not lost people. These are not people who just come to church. These are not just visitors. These are the brethren, those who have been born into God's family. He says they are babies, but he says they are babies in Christ. There in verse 1. And then in verse 3, he said they, that they are living like unbelievers. They are believers, but they're not living like it. They're not acting like it. They're not thinking like it. So we're talking about Christians. And this is something else because Paul founded this church in uh, probably the A.D. 50, but who cares about the days? But, so Paul founds this church in Corinth. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 18, the, his, the historical account of how this all unfolded. Uh, so Paul founds this church, and then uh, in, in Acts chapter 18, uh, we find out that, that uh, Paul stayed there for a year and a half. So he, he lived in Corinth, and he started this church, and he stayed there for a year and a half. Paul was there, he was teaching them, he was explaining, he was discipling, he was revealing scripture to them for a year and a half. And Paul's telling us right here that when he was there, he had to just give them milk. So at the entire time he was there, it never went any further. So when Paul left, they were still babies. They were still drinking milk. And we remember that Paul ended up going to Ephesus. He goes back down to Jerusalem and he starts his third missionary journey. And he ends his way all the way back up in Ephesus. And he's in Ephesus when he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And so by this time, this church is probably six years old. If not, it might be four years old, but somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six years old. This church has been around a while. And they're still babies. They haven't grown. So it means that it is possible for a believer, a real believer, to not grow. And that can look in a whole lot of different ways. So uh, if a believer decides to start living like an unbeliever, thinking like an unbeliever, seeing things the way unbelievers do, then it won't be long before their life begins to change. And, uh, you know, you may know someone who's made a profession of faith and you're certain that they'd accepted Christ. You could tell because God had opened their eyes and their minds and they understood. They really understood and believed. And then they went this direction and now they're off in, into the woods. And then you start, what do we start doing? We start thinking, well, maybe they really weren't saved. There's no way a saved person would ever be doing that. Well, that's just not true. I know because it happened to me. I don't know when, but at least by the third grade, I was a complete disaster. At least. At least third grade. Gee whiz, I was a mess. It wasn't until college when I repented. And I've told you that story. I know in the ninth grade, that was when God really knocked on my heart. And he said, it's time to come back, Craig. 
I was reading a book by Billy Graham, of all things. The way I was living, I started reading one of my dad's books on a bookshelf. I picked up and started reading it. And, and I made the decision, this, this costs too much. I'm not doing this. And I turned my back and I kept going. This speaks to the eternal security of the believer. That when God saves you, He saves you. And you are His kid and you will always be His kid. Now sometimes we can shoot off in the wrong direction and it ends up taking our lives. Sometimes we die out there. But when God saves you, He saves you. For good. It never changes. But in this situation here in Corinth, it hasn't gotten that far. Because these babies are still in church. They're still attending. And so they're in good shape. There's still hope. But we all know that if we embrace the world long enough, we will begin to look like the world. We will be walking like mere men. So what does that tell us? That tells us that these guys were, these folks were going to church for 18 months with Paul, the Apostle Paul of all people. I mean, wouldn't you love to just be with the Apostle Paul? I have so many questions. Boy. But to not grow. And then we, it looks like Peter had something to do with this church. Peter. And then Apollos, we all know about him. So they had like the best Bible guys on the planet and they're still babies. And so how do we explain that? It's easy. Because it means that what they were being exposed to, the truths of God, the things they're being exposed to, wasn't being applied to their lives. There's the story about a rabbi and a priest and a Baptist pastor, Gene. It was a Baptist pastor. And they went hunting. They went deer hunting. And they all saw the deer and they all shot at the deer at the same time. And they ran up and the deer's dead and they ran up to it and they began to argue about who shot the deer. And the Baptist pastor had the last word. He said, I am confident I'm the one who hit this deer. I said, oh, really? Why? He said, because the bullet went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> so this is the problem. Great teaching around other Christians, every opportunity to, to thrive, but they're still babies. So how did Paul know that they were babies? By their behavior. It was what they were doing. A mature Christian knows better than to bring in jealousy and strife into the church. Mature Christians know better than to do that. They value the church more than that. That's why Paul refers to their diet as milk instead of solid food. You know, there's nothing wrong with infancy. When you first become a Christian, you are in infancy. When, you, uh, when I ran away from God and I came back, I was a baby. I was a baby. I was, you know, at the age I was at, but believe me, I was a baby. Somebody asked me to read the 23rd Psalm. I didn't have a Bible. The very first Wednesday, I, I repented on Tuesday, and I was at church Wednesday night, and it was my turn to read. It was Psalm 23. I had no clue what Psalm 23 was. And the guy who knew me, he said, well, Craig, it's just Psalm 23. I said, horrible look on my face probably and so somebody else started reading and as soon as they were reading I was so ashamed I was thinking to myself 
I'm going to learn Psalm 23. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's not a shame, nothing to be ashamed of when you first become a Christian and when you first repent. That you're not running a marathon. The problem is, is if we stay there. My wife always talks about how immature I am. Just the other day, and I said, she said, you are just, it's unbelievable, Craig. You're just so immature. I was like, no, I'm not. Now get out of my treehouse. <laughs> That's right, the last joke, I promise. No more jokes. <laughs> All right. So, but anyway, maturity. Uh, you know, uh, maturity, uh, what it is, is, and I, I asked you guys a question, how, how do you bear, how do you, how do you grow? How do you be mature? You know, do you plug your wall, you saw, uh, you're plugging into the wall to get the electricity. The key, maturity comes from being exposed to God over a period of time as you yield your will to Him. And the Holy Spirit takes advantage of that. When we yield our will to God, the Holy Spirit does His stuff. And we grow. That's where maturity comes from. It's when we are actually participating in that process of sanctification. When we're participating in that transforming of the renewing of our minds. Being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think that most of us will admit that we may do real well and be very mature most of the time, but there's that one thing when we hit that nerve, boy, we're ready to be divisive real quick because that's my thing. And this is the problem. If we don't participate, if we're you know, not yielding our will to God, then this whole process can be stunted or even, in this case, stopped. You know, They weren't growing. They were still little babies. So they had stunted, even worse, they had stopped the process. And this happens when we return to our old life and start living like unbelievers. It's like putting on dirty underwear, putting on old jeans that you've been wearing for a week, putting those jeans back on. You know, it's like a Betamax. Do you guys know what a Betamax is? You know, it's like trying to watch a movie on a VCR instead of whatever. You know. Now DVDs are out. You know, it's all online, live or streaming, but. You can see the pictures when you're returning to something that you've graduated from that should be well in your past. You know, it's a, uh, if, a, if a Christian wants to spend all of their time beating themselves up about all of the stupid things they've done, you can't grow like that. God has created you as a new creature. Uh, John 10.10 says he, God wants you to have an abundant life, a good life. Don't spend all of your time beating yourself up about the stupid things that you do. You're going to do them all the time. We all sin all the time. Move on from that. Don't think of yourself like that. God doesn't want you to think like that. Be a winner in your brain because you are a winner. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he says that when we return to our old ways, he said it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Or he said that it's, it's like a pig, a sow, after washing itself, goes and wallows in the mud. Instead of being a, a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. This is what God wants out of our lives. So, uh, in this case, in the church of Corinth, the problem is that this happened very early in their walk with God because they're still babies. They're stuck. 
So it isn't like they were doing pretty good and then, you know, they met the wrong girl or guy or whatever happened, you know, whatever happened and got derailed or, you know, I can think of things in my life where I can hang my hat on certain things that just took me off in the wrong direction, you know, and so, you know, it wasn't like that. This is very, in the very beginning, in the infancy of this church, in the infancy of these believers' faith, they would not submit their wills and let go of their past. For some reason, they, they thought that they could, they could manage this thing on their own. And they didn't value the new creature, the new man. So the first one is that God wants us to see that the church is a family and we're all supposed to be growing together and maturing. The second thing is the church is a field. And of course, a field has a bunch of plants in it, a bunch of stuff. That's us. We're the plants. And we're supposed to grow and bear fruit. That's the goal. And in quantity, a lot. The idea here is that when, when we plant something, we want it to grow. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. We're going to read to 5 through 9, which has to do with this. And then that'll be the end of our passage this morning. We're going to be studying. But beginning in verse 5, it says, So what is Apollos and what is Paul? We know these are two men who were teaching there at this church. They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are equal, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the church is a field, and the goal is quantity. And uh, in, in in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul talks about he was, they could maybe have many teachers, but you'd only have one father. I started this church. So Paul is the one who planted. And other believers and people believed through him. But others came to Christ through Apollos, we know. In chapter 3, verse 5 there. They are servants through whom you believed. And he's mentioned Apollos. At the end of this chapter, he's going to bring Peter back into this. He's going to talk about Paul, Apollos, and, and Peter, just like he did in chapter 1. So it looks like some people were led to Christ by Peter in some way, and some by Apollos, and some by Paul. It says they were, they were servants to whom you believe. And so, you know, all of us can understand the, uh, the attachments that... Uh, All of us can understand the attachments that we might have with someone who led us to Christ or who's helped us in significant ways with our walk and who is there for us at the right time. And, you know, that, I can understand that, and so can you. I, I have those people in my life. But we're supposed to be pointing people to Christ, not to ourselves. And there's no condemnation for Apollos or Peter or Paul here 
This is something that the believers are doing. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we're here, not because we're on the winning team or, you know, all of a sudden the Bearcats are doing great, so now we're Bearcats fans. You know, uh, it's not for the pastor or the teacher or your mentor. You're here because of your faith in Christ. And so who you are in Christ is supposed to transcend wherever you're at. If this church was to fall apart, if divisive attitudes prevailed and this church just imploded, you know, we all got scattered for some reason. Maybe persecution, maybe things changed in the United States, whatever, but for some reason all of us can't come together on Sunday morning anymore. Then you're going to have to ask yourself, you know, who is it that my faith is in? Is it the church? What if I do something to disqualify myself? I have. I just haven't got caught all the time. But you know, when we're all scattered, that's when we have to ask ourselves: Who is it that I really follow? Why do I go to church? By God's design, Paul and Apollos were working for God with one purpose, and they all needed each other. You know, uh, you probably met some Christian who says that everywhere they went, they lead six people to Christ. You know, or whatever. But maybe they do. But my point is, is that no one leads anybody to Christ. There's no harvest without somebody planting and watering and laboring and cultivating. Nothing happens overnight like that. It takes time. And it takes all people. And so this is what Paul's saying here. He's saying that uh, it takes all of us. God uses all of us in that process. You probably can think of different people. I, I know Mike was talking about somebody he wished was here this morning. Mike is planting seeds, he's watering the seeds, he's trying to encourage this person. And in the outline there's the word quantity. And the word quantity is not in the Bible here at all. But it doesn't need to be. Quantity has everything to do with watering and planting and laboring and growing because they all have the same goal of bearing fruit. Who would ever plant a tomato plant and be happy if it only produced one little tiny tomato. This is the way God sees the church. He expects us to to work and grow. Um, uh, it says there in verse 7 that God causes the growth, but we participate. And um, Gene read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in Sunday school this morning. And uh, incredible verses because, uh, yes, God does cause the growth. You know, we can get really upset when, you know, I remember I used to buy tickets for concerts and try to invite all my friends. I'd always buy extra tickets because I'm sure I could get them to come. <laughs> they never would. I'd, I'd be stuck with all these tickets. You know, I just wanted them to come. I thought, if they'll just come to this Petra concert, they'll get saved, you know. This is what I would think. And then if I could just get them to come to church, you know, they could just see this movie and then it's lights out. Nothing happens. It is God who causes the growth. But we were participants. We work in that field, the church. In chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul t- in verse 20, Paul tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. That God is appealing through us. And we plead on Christ's behalf for people to be reconciled to God. That's what we do. 
He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what happened to us. This message of reconciliation. And God is sending us as His representatives pleading for Him. God is appealing to men through us. And so, yes, God causes the growth, but we participate. So let's pray.